Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In his early 20s, Benjamin Franklin embarked on what he called a bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection, intending to master a list of 13 virtues. He soon came up, uh, gave up on perfection, rather, but continued to believe that these attributes, along with a generous heart and a bemused acceptance of human frailty, laid the foundation for both a good life and a workable society. Well, writer and visual artist and Utah resident Teresa Jordan wondered if Franklin's uh, notions of virtue, which some might consider antiquated, might offer guidance to a nation increasingly divided by angry righteousness. She decided to try to live his list for a year, focusing on each virtue for a week at a time and taking weekends off to attend to the seven deadly sins. The journal she kept became her new book, The Year of Living Virtuously, Weekends Off. It's a collection of illustrated essays, weaving personal anecdotes with the views of theologians, philosophers, ethicists, evolutionary biologists, a whole range of scholars and scientists within the emerging field of consciousness studies. And during her journey, she was surprised, as was Benjamin Franklin before her, to quote Franklin, to find myself so much fuller of false than I had imagined. And she joins us uh, from her home in Virgin. Uh, Teresa Jordan, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. It's wonderful to talk with you. Uh, thanks for joining us. I understand that uh, this project came about in part, you write this in your introduction, uh, a, 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 as a part of a desire to get back into writing after spending some time in the visual arts. You're a talented visual artist as well. That's right. I took a sort of um, um, detour in midlife. I got very interested in visual art, and I went back to school. I went to the University of Utah and their wonderful art department, and really for a number of years primarily did um, visual art. I kept teaching writing, and uh, I when I decided to go back to, I really wanted to, to write seriously again, I felt I needed to get my chops up. And, and when I do teach, I often, I always really, in classes with students, I start out with, um, to get them warmed up to writing and doing some writing exercises, free writes and triggered writing, throwing out a, a word or a phrase to provoke um, a train of thought, and it's always fascinating where those pieces of writing go. Often students are just amazed. They'll think, I never knew I could write that or I would write that when I walked in the room today. And so I thought, well, I'll try that with myself. And so initially, find, finding this, stumbling across this list again from Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, which I had read, I think probably as his um, in fifth or sixth grade, but had forgotten about, I just thought, well, those, you know, those issues affect us every single day, the issues of virtue and vice, and those are provocative triggers. So I really started into it just as almost a finger exercises for a pianist, that sort of practice. And then it went from there. Uh, you, you write also that Benjamin Franklin is your favorite founding father, and that you, you connect that with growing up in a Wyoming ranch community. How, where, where's that connection? Well, Benjamin Franklin was, you know, there's a saying that George Washington was, um, of the founding fathers, George Washington was first in his, the heart of his countrymen, but Benjamin Franklin was first in everything else. And he was, he was an extraordinarily broad and, and uh, ambitious and gifted person. I mean, he was an, a printer, a, a prodigious writer from a very early age. He started publishing under the pseudonym of of Silence Do Good, The Rye Widow, when he was only 16. Um, he was an inventor. I mean, so many things that um, make our lives better today, like 
I'm of a certain age where bifocals are important. He invented those. But he was um, a scientist. He, he first understood and described the Gulf Stream, among many, many other scientific discoveries. And above all, he was a statesman and a diplomat. And he really, I really don't, most historians believe we wouldn't have the country we have without him. He's the only one who played a major role in all four of the, of the documents that allowed us to be America, which were the, the, the Declaration of Independence, the alliance with France, without which we could not have won the Revolutionary War. And he was uniquely gifted and able to, main, to build that and maintain that, then the peace with Britain when the war was over. And finally, he really was the voice that allowed the very different ideas about what this country to, to, should be to, to find collaboration and compromise and ratify the American Constitution. So in terms of making things work, he was, he was um, gifted maybe beyond anyone that mm. we've ever had in this country. But he was also, and this is maybe why he was—he played such a role uh, in my own thoughts growing up. He was the, sort of the patron saint of self-reliance, and I did grow up on a uh, an isolated ranch. We were in southeast Wyoming, 50 miles from Cheyenne, and you really had to—you you couldn't call a plumber, you couldn't call a vet. You—you um, you had to figure out. Um, how to how to fix things, how to make things work on your own, and I appreciated that about Franklin. He was a um, an autodidact. I mean, he taught himself everything and anything. He was extremely curious, which I identified with, um, and and he also had this great sense of humor and this appreciation of other people. He really wanted he wanted to live a virtuous life. He wanted not only to do good, but to be good. And yet he wasn't a prig. I, he, had a, he had a great acceptance of human foibles, including, I may say, his own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was, he was very aware of his own shortcomings. And he tried to, to negotiate them, to, to still be able to build the sorts of relationships he wanted and, uh, on a very large scale, the so- sorts of society he wanted to live in. It, it's interesting. It's inspiring. It's, uh, I guess, from a vantage point of age, it's uh, w- which he himself had. It's uh, he was a little bemused at his earlier self, but but in his twenties, I believe, and this is set out in the autobiography, um, one of the best autobiographies ever, I think. Uh, he set out to systematically um, cultivate these virtues. He had a list of twelve, right? Until his friend suggested yes. that uh, maybe he ought to had ought to overcome pride. <laughs> That's exactly right. He started out with with twelve, and um, um, a friend of his, a Quaker friend, as a matter of fact, looked at this list and said, "You know, Ben, you're missing something. You really, you know, you 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 sort of suffer from arrogance. I think you might want to add humility to this list." And at the end of his life, I mean, he, you know, I think humility is hard for Americans. Uh, we are not a humble people. And Benjamin Franklin was not a humble man. He was very gifted. He liked, uh, and he worked very, very hard. And he liked the um, reaping the rewards of both. Uh, at the end of his life, he said, you know, I have, I have succeeded often at the appearance of humility, but I have seldom succeeded at the reality of it. And yet, it, it, you know, and I, and I think that that's the idea 
maybe that I came into looking at humility with that humility would be a sort of self-deprecation or a or a or a, um, uh, a belittlement of the self in some way. But what Jefferson had that I've come to think is the real core of humility is that he had a genuine interest and a genuine respect in other people. And as much as he loved to talk and as interesting a conversationalist as he was when he was talking, he also learned to listen. One of his virtues was silence. And he had, uh, an essay of his that's been important to me is on conversation. And he, you know, he pointed out what deep down we all know, that when we are talking, we are not learning. We, you know, we learn by listening to other people. And one thing that he did throughout his life, I mentioned his first writing, which he, he apprenticed to his, his uh, brother, a printer, and he started submitting pieces to his brother's paper. He didn't think his brother would publish him if he knew it was Ben, but he started writing under the pseudonym of Silence Do Good. And throughout his life, he wrote under dozens, maybe even hundreds of pseudonyms when he was in... London still trying to find a, a workable compromise for the Americans to stay under the crown. He, he wrote under over 40 pseudonyms, half of which were British and half were, were American. And doing this, quite literally putting himself in, in other people's shoes and, and in their imaginations and in their concerns, he, he garnered a great respect for the, for the reality that what we see is different depending on where we where we sit, and that people could have very different ideas, and not be evil, you know, not be, but but simply be operating from their own view of the world. And I think this was this, which is a, an understanding, a sort of humility. I think this was really at the core of him being such a gifted statesman. Talking about listening, you you have there's a page in the book. It's uh... There's, it looks like a little a block print. It's, it's a deer. The, the word is attend. And you quote uh, yes. Philip Glass, who talked about in composing listening. Uh, he says, composing music is a form of concentrated listening, which is very interesting. Yes. yes. And, he, and he said, you know, I don't compose music so much as listen to, to what is already there. Hmm. And, I, you know, I think so many creative people will... Um, will tell you something similar. Isabel Allende talks about uh, the, um, the the deep river from which all stories come. Uh, a metaphor I've, uh, that's been important to me is the cave of the stories, and it's sort of getting very, very quiet and uh, and seeing what what wants to come up, what wants to be articulated in music or in poetry or in or in or in prose or in visual art. Um, I think that insight, uh, used in in terms of public leaders, in terms of spiritual leaders, it often comes from some ability to be to step back and be quiet and ask, like Socrates, what what don't I know? What am I not seeing here? Hmm. Uh- the impulse, I, I think all of us can relate to the impulse that Benjamin Franklin had uh, it, as a young man, and I think through his life, uh, that impulse to win that battle, that internal battle. You quote E.B. White. We do have a, a gigantic internal battle uh, going on. Uh, Benjamin Franklin tried to systematize this, this progress 
but I think we all we all recognize that. Um, but you talk about being more interested in virtue than righteousness. I wonder if you could explain that, and that righteousness scares you. Yes, yes, righteousness scares me. You know, at at the end of his life, when he was looking back and 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 and, um, and saying, "I was surprised to find myself so much fuller of fault than I imagined," he also forgave himself, and he said, "If I can and paraphrase this, he said that the extreme uh, correctness that I." Um, uh, was asking of myself, if it were known, would make me ridicu- ridiculous and, in fact, make a foppery or uh, a folly of virtue. Um, and, if, you know, if you look at fundamentalism, fundamentalism is an, is an extreme of virtue. It's a belief that there is one right way, and you, and perhaps you alone, know that way, that you understand what God wants, and God wants death and destruction on everyone else. And that's, um, that, that's the core of fundamentalism. That's the core of what we're struggling with in, in, um, in, in extreme and fundamentalist religions of all sorts, uh, in the Spanish Inquisition, in the, in the uh, um, Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda today. So that extre- uh, ex- the excess of any virtue to excess is a vice. Mm. Uh, I'd like to have you give us your definition of virtue. And this said, uh, reading your introduction, you took uh, your husband's definition of sin and, and turned that around. This was in response to a questionnaire. Yes, yes. We were both asked to be part of a, um, a, a site called uh, 12 Questions that asked us 12 questions about life and asked us to respond to them. And one was, what is your definition of virtue? What is your definition of vice? And or of sin, and and my husband Hal Cannon, uh, who is uh, a musician and folklorist and a long-term sort of Utah um, uh, 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 collector and and enlightener of old Utah traditions, but he he said he thought of sin as making the world go backward through human action, and it's very simple. But you know, I think that's true, and and uh, and I think virtue is is making the world go forward through human action, doing something which supports um, the uh, love, compassion, getting along, making our, making our society work. Um, I, I, I found, uh, again, in that introduction, I talked about my mom, who died when I was 20. She was quite young when she had a, an aneurysm. Uh, but she continues to be a great teacher to me, and she she was not a super mom. She was very clear about you know she was she was quite happy to be a good enough mom to be a good enough housekeeper. She always said about housekeeping she didn't want to be remembered for her housekeeping. She didn't want to be remembered as a slob, but neither did she want to be remembered as a as a as as someone who was pristine. And this position gave her. Time it gave her space. It allowed her to be playful with her kids. It allowed her to have a playful relationship with her husband. Um, she was a good friend and uh, to her many friends and uh, active on the on the ranch. And and it also gave her time. She was a, a wonderful reader and and she loved to disappear in, into a book. And uh, and she could do so without without guilt. Hmm. So you you. She was, I guess, and you were talking about moderation in pursuit of, 
of virtue, which which flies in the face, I think, of sometimes of uh, notions of we have to be excellent in everything we do, right, including self-improvement. That's Yes, that's right. And, uh, you know, I don't know how long Benjamin Franklin followed his virtue project. He, he set out this series of charts, and even Benjamin, you know, thought he couldn't master them all at once. So he set out these charts, and he figured he would focus on each virtue a week at a time. So 13 virtues, that, you know, is a quarter of a year, and you could do four rounds in a year. And he, he wrote, he thought by uh, a number of rounds, he would have a clean slate. And uh, we really don't know, or at least I haven't been able to find out, scholars somewhere may know, but how long he actually kept this up. My sense is that he didn't really attend to it um, for a very long time. And I think that that sort of hyper-attention, that almost navel-gazing, um, doesn't doesn't work very well. I think I, I found for myself, I originally thought, well, I will just write each week about uh, about how this virtue is played out in my own week, and uh, uh, the vir- say the virtue of moder- uh, of moderation or the virtue of tranquility. But very quickly, I found that in any given week, um, our lives are more complicated than that. And as a writer, you need to keep yourself interested. Uh, if you don't keep yourself interested, your readers certainly aren't going to be interested. And I found myself wanting, needing to go outside of my own experience. And I'm sure I, I expect that this is what happened with uh, with with Benjamin Franklin hmm. as well. Um, but he continued to 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 keep those virtues in mind and hone to them. I think as he tried to make decisions, tried to understand his own actions sometimes when they weren't as, uh, didn't have as positive out, an outcome as, as he had hoped. You, uh, you have One an of the, Oh, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say that the subtitle for this book is One Woman's Search for Meaning in an Ordinary Life. And I think that, the, you know, these virtues and vices play out in our ordinary lives. I, I'm not, I didn't write about the big hot-button issues, you know, of, of, of corruption on Wall Street or, or, um, or, or pride in, in, in Washington, D.C., or at least I didn't to, to any degree. You know, you look at something like the story of King Lear, and my favorite of all the Shakespearean plays, and King Lear was not a villain. His tragic flaw wasn't that he that he um, was a tyrant. He didn't commit genocide. Uh, he didn't um, he didn't brutalize his family. In fact, he wanted to be a good father. He wanted to, he wanted his legacy to continue with his daughters. His tragic flaw flaws were the flaws all of us have. He he was susceptible to flattery. He couldn't understand the sincere devotion of his youngest daughter. He, um, uh, he was deaf to the advice of his dearest friend. And that, from that, you know, those most human of, of, of follies, of, of failures, those, what happens to us every day over the dinner table, or, or at least once a week over the dinner table, uh, the whole kingdom was lost. So that's what interests me, mm-hmm. is just how these, you know, how these, um, what causes us to struggle in our relationships? How do we repair our transgressions? How do we work to, to help our own communities and our country and, and even the world go forward through human action? 
Those are excellent questions. We'll uh, dive into uh, some of those following a break. We're talking with Teresa Jordan, um, and uh, she is author most recently of a very interesting uh, book. She's uh, based this on Benjamin Franklin. He set out to systematically uh, cultivate virtues in his life, a list of 13 virtues. He gave up on the project, but uh, he uh, he said this might uh, offer a key uh, to us as we uh, offer uh, perhaps acceptance to others as we uh, continue to try to improve ourselves. And these, this idea, which some might uh, consider antiquated, this, this idea of virtues, Teresa Jordan says, might offer guidance to a nation increasingly divided by angry righteousness. That's a very apt description. We'll talk about that. As well as some very interesting examples in the book. I'll uh, want to get into the uh, idea of tranquility. She uses the idea of Terry Waite, who was uh, captured, held captive for four years in Lebanon, and uh, Brooke Hopkins, the University of Utah professor, I think most of us uh, know about, who uh, uh, broke his neck and was captured in his body for some time. And a very interesting um, history behind Owen Wister, author of The Virginian and uh, Ideas of Animal Cruelty, uh, draws all of these into her book and more, of course. And the uh, book is uh, The Year of Living Virtuously, Weekends Off. More following the break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. The idea of emotional intelligence is one of the most important management concepts of the last 25 years. No longer do we ask our leaders to be the smartest person in the room, but we ask them to be self-aware, socially skilled, and empathetic. Empathetic often means dealing with cultural differences. Cultural differences abound in the global work environment. And being able to cross cultural boundaries and do business with people who are different is not only emotionally intelligent, but it's essential in today's workplace. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. The following is an encore presentation. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. As you probably know, in his early 20s, Benjamin Franklin embarked on what he called a bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. He intended to master a list of 13 virtues. He soon gave up on perfection, but continued to believe that these attributes, along with a generous heart and a bemused acceptance of human frailty, laid the foundation for both a good life and a workable society. So now a writer and visual artist and Utah resident Teresa Jordan wonders if Franklin's notions of virtue, which some might consider antiquated, might offer guidance to a nation increasingly divided by angry righteousness. And she decided to try to live his list for a year, focusing on each virtue for a week at a time, taking weekends off to attend to the seven deadly sins. Teresa Jordan is our guest for the day. She joins us from her home in Virgin. So Teresa Jordan, taking weekends off to attend to the seven deadly sins, that... (laughs) I chuckled at that when I first first read that. You, you, I don't know. You, you have to go back and forth. What was your idea there? <laughs> well, I, it, it, in some in in some ways, it was a uh, um, uh, 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 it, it was a. a uh, I, I certainly didn't want this to, this project to seem as if I I really thought that I could 
get a handle on virtue, that I could become a virtuous, a, 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 a perfectly virtuous person. And um, the sins do interest me very much, and, and of course we all um, struggle with them every every single day. Weekends off became a bit of a joke, and and um, and in the fa- in my family with my husband, I would say even a bit of a sore point. I I really did start this project just thinking that this would be something on the side, that this would be. Um, uh, as I, as I mentioned, sort of like finger exercises for a pianist. I thought, you know, four hours a week, I'll, I'll take one of these and I'll write for four hours a week. But very quickly, I, there, I got very interested in, in, these, in these virtues and vices, and I needed to go outside my own experience. And this became um, uh, quite a research project with each virtue, with each vice, uh, understanding its historical context, uh, often um, uh, behavioral context. We now have this extraordinary new and burgeoning field of, of consciousness study that's looking at uh, why we act the way we do, how our brains work, how our hormonal systems work, how our endocrine systems work to affect behavior. Um, I ended up doing incredible amounts of, of research for for every one of these essays. I think the uh, source list at the end of the book goes on for something like 10 pages. And instead of the, something that I was sort of doing on the side, this became front and center. And, and actually, uh, Weekends Off fell completely and entirely by, by the wayside. So uh, I think I had wanted to look at this in the beginning as a uh, exercise of mindfulness and sometimes it was uh, uh, more an exercise of obsession uh, I just want to mention Franklin's list uh, and you mentioned that it's uh, as the man himself is pretty practical right these these were these yeah. are fairly practical virtues I'll just list them very quickly temperance silence order resolution frugality industry sincerity justice moderation cleanliness tranquility uh, chastity and then uh, the the uh, virtue that his friend uh, mentioned to him humility um, I, w- I want to get into this this idea of, and you have an inscription in the front of the book, this idea that maybe it's not healthy and it, it doesn't hold your interest, didn't hold yours anyway, this this intense navel-gazing. I guess some people it would, uh, but it, but it probably not, not healthy. And so this inscription by Novalis, the first step is introspection, exclusive contemplation of the self, but whoever stops there goes only halfway. The second step must be genuine observation outward, spontaneous, sober observation of the external world. That's where your journey led you. Yes, it is, very much. And, you know, from growing up on a ranch, and, and I think with this idea of self-reliance, there was a, I don't know exactly where this came from. I don't know if someone in my family or, or a circle said that, but very early on, I remember thinking uh, a, a little motto that's been really important in my life, which is other people do it. And by that, mean, by that I don't mean uh, the way, mom, everybody else is going to the party, why can't I go to the party? But other people have been able to, to, to navigate this. Some, you know, I, I, I broke a, a colt when I was 13. And that, that came out of our Marin stud bunch. And we had my grandfather was um, had bought this stud that that just really couldn't 
he threw colts that were very, very difficult to break. And I wanted to break a, a colt and uh, was talked my way into getting a, a two-year-old out of, out of this Marinstead bunch. And I remember thinking, well, other people can break horses, you know, that, that if somebody else can do it, I can do it. I remember thinking that when I decided out of college that I would be a freelance writer rather than get um, a real job, which would have satisfied my father a lot better. Uh, but other but people can make their way as freelance writers. And, and so this, um, this, this idea that, that if I don't have the answer, if other people can do it, then it tells me that it's possible. And so I think that that underlay a lot of these explorations. Uh, you mentioned tranquility, and, and I, I struggle with anxiety, uh, with just that feeling of, of, of anxiety that can take you over at times. And, and over small things, I mean, just being in public or, or you know, giving a talk or something. And so when I, I wanted to look at tranquility, I, I thought, well, other people have found tranquility under conditions that, that seem entirely impossible. I mean, conditions that even to think about them causes me, literally causes my blood pressure to go up. I mean, I feel fear to think about, um, for instance, being a hostage. I was a very... Uh, a, 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 a precocious reader, we I think living so far out without TV, but I read Leon Uris's book Exodus about uh, the the um, the Jews in concentration camps in World War II, and just the horror of that experience. I read that very young, and it just left it was so indelible to me, and it left me with just a, a terror of being. Um, being held hostage in a in a situation that was that was powerless, uh, and so when I I wanted to understand tranquility, I took the story of Terry Waite, who was an envoy for the Archbishop of of Canterbury and was negotiating for um, the release of hostages in Lebanon when he was taken hostage. He was held for four years, much of the time in solitary confinement in a in a blackened room, a room with no light, often chained to the wall or chained to the floor. And in this horrifying, painful um, experience of of, um, um, of of captivity, um, he he nonetheless he found moments not all the time, but he found moments of of real um, um, transcendence of peace, even on occasion of of bliss. Um, um, it, may I just read a little bit? Yes, from cert- that? certainly. Yeah, I would love you okay. have you do that. Um, I need a structure. He realized early on, and he wrote this in the book. He wrote about it after: wake, pray, eat, wash, exercise, pray, think, eat, and so the day passes. By creating a pattern in the vacuum in which I live, I exercise my choice, affirm my identity. Even when the guard tells me that I am to be chained again, I have a schedule for the remaining hours of the day. He prayed the communion service. He worked out complicated mathematical problems in his head. He started writing a book in his imagination, something he found sustaining, if also peculiar. I sit chained to an iron radiator with nothing but my thoughts, he wrote. Some memories stream back like great pools of light. I see people I have known and feel the warmth of their company. Other days are lost to recall, waiting for the magic touch which will bring them to life again. 
His mood cycled, anger, despair, boredom, but also, and increasingly over time, tranquility. I'm learning to be quiet and still within. Perhaps calm is a better word. I don't want too much stillness as I need a certain inner tension to keep my mind alive. And so here he was really just left with with no resources but what he had inside. And and he found a place there um, by very conscious effort. Uh, he found a place there where he could have control over his his own life in this in this environment which was taken which was created to make him have no sense of control. And he did find these moments of, of calm and stillness and, and even a grace in in solitude. Having thought about this, I, I don't know if I, I, you know, I think all of us have those same fears and then wonder, and I don't think you can know what you would do or be able to do unless you were in that situation. But uh, he found, he found tranquility in that horrible situation. How, he did. How, how do you do that? And, you know, one of the things, and again, I think by knowing that it's it's possible, uh, by um, it, it, he, it, it, he had, he had uh, known so many hostages. He had successfully negotiated the release of many hostages. He had known many people who had um, um, survived and, and, and emerged, he says at one point, uh, very early on, he said, "You know, I've entered this rare, this rare community, this rare um, uh, company of people who have endured this, and he, they have managed to to uh, emerge as whole people. I know that that is possible for myself, and I think that that's really the extraordinary power of stories. None of us know. I have no idea. It still just terrifies me to think of being held hostage." And yet I know that if something like that happened or if I uh, were to come um, to experience something like Brooke Hopkins experienced, which was extraordinary physical challenge, in his case, complete uh, paralysis under, under the neck, that the story of Terry Waite and the story of Brooke Hopkins would give me a starting point. It mm-hmm. would allow me to understand that other people had faced this Challenge in a word which both Waite and 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 Terry Waite and Brooke Hopkins are 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 not at all afraid to use that have experienced real suffering and yet still found meaning in their life and and found a way and even found moments within it um, of of calm of acceptance and both of them talk about moments even of bliss and it is a choice, isn't it? You you have a quote in the book from. Uh... Hopkins' wife, I believe. But and by the way, he he, I think uh, when he woke up, you know, uh, he's, he's paralyzed from the neck down, ventilated tubes. Uh, he said to his wife, "We can still have a joyful life together." I think something to that effect. Yes. Uh, and we then can still build a good life. And th- and then what did she? She has a quote that she have in the book. You know, at the at the um, Peggy Batten, Brooks' wife, and you know this. Uh, life is just full of the most extraordinary ironies, but she's a, an extremely um, well-known medical ethicist uh, whose work has been studied and, 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 um, um, and used all around the world. And her work has 
uh, focused on end of life issues, on the on right to die, and and uh, uh, people um, b- being able to make the choices they want to make at the end of their life. And so, to suddenly have this situation in both hers and Brooks' life around uh, uh, under what conditions do you do you choose to live? But she told her she and she's lectured quite a lot, and she was lecturing a. Uh, um, uh, a class at the at the university, and uh, telling the story of of uh, this experience together. And she and Brooke, from early on, started to write a blog about their experiences, which really was a a way for them both to understand what was going on and to communicate with each other. Um, and initially, I think they thought it was to help communicate to their friends and their family. But it became a, a collaboration, a way for them to work together and also to communicate. But um, Peggy was invited to speak to an honors class at the at the university, and um, she told the students about Brooks' accident and the role that writing had come to play in their in their lives as they struggled to um, um, to thrive, you know, in spite of of these huge changes. And then she suggested that the students meet their own experiences of adversity with the question, how do you want this to change your life? And, you know, I found that question myself so interesting and so indicative of Peggy because it wasn't, you know, how is this going to change my life? But how do you want this experience to change your life? When something very bad happens, want, desire, that sense that this might have some modicum even of opportunity is sort of the furthest from our from our from our minds but it is the question i think on which success uh and building a meaningful life in that condition maybe maybe that is exactly the question it turns around and then she um she told me that afterwards after she'd asked this question of this class how do you want this to change your life a student wrote her and said, I can't stop thinking about this question. I don't have an answer yet, but I'm looking forward to figuring it out. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, the, it's a very good question. We're going to take another break when we come back more with Teresa Jordan. And uh, the book is just out, and it's called The Year of Living Virtuously, Weekends Off, a collection of illustrated essays, weaving personal anecdotes, views of theologians, philosophers, ethicists, evolutionary biologists, a whole range of scholars and scientists, And she bases this on Benjamin Franklin's quest for perfection. In his early 20s, he set out in a systematic way to to perfect his life uh, and perfect uh, 13 virtues. Uh, So she uh, takes this as a jumping-off point. Interesting discussion. You can join us on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio, and our email is upraxis at gmail.com. More with Teresa Jordan following the break. I'm Fred Child. Composer Bruce Adolph joins us every week with a musical game. Play along, see if you can name the hidden tune and the composer whose style Bruce is mimicking. Our piano puzzler is on the way, plus highlights from concert halls around the world on the next Performance Today from APM. Join us tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Another 10 minutes left in the program. You can email us to upraxis at gmail.com and we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. 
My guest uh, for another 10 minutes is Teresa Jordan. She and uh, her husband, Hal Cannon, live in Virgin, Utah, in the southern part of the state. And her new book is a very interesting book, The Year of Living Virtuously, Weekends Off. This is based on a journal she kept while uh, she uh, set out on a project to follow Benjamin Franklin's systematic uh, cultivation of uh, 13 virtues. And she looked at the uh, seven deadly vices as well. Um, and Teresa Jordan, I, I, was, I was fascinated by your chapter comparing and contrasting Benjamin Franklin and, and Ayn Rand. Uh, there are some similarities. There are some differences. Um, I wonder if you could uh, take us through that in in brief. And uh, the, each is uh, kind of a uh, what an icon for self reliance, but in different ways. That's right. That's right. You know, I was I was interested in this question because um, my uh, my parents, most especially my my father, were followers of Anne Rand. Uh, she was very popular with conservatives in the in the fifties and, and in the sixties. Her um, novel Atlas Shrugged has been considered um, uh, in a in a poll of the most uh, important books um, in the world of American readers. Um, the Book of the Month Club. Um, Conducted, it was considered the second most influential book after the Bible, um, and I think a lot of us read that when when we were when we were young. I think it is a uh, and so much of her philosophy underlies um, um, is called upon in in the Tea Party and and um, at, at this point you'll often see these signs. Who is John Galt? Which was the line out of Alice Shrugged, and John Galt was. Uh, the extremely individualistic um, uh, hero of that of that tale, um, and it, it, both Benjamin Franklin and and Ayn Rand were extremely interested in self reliance. They came at it from very different um, from very different directions, and Benjamin Franklin believed in community, and and he believed that. Uh, he said the the good men do individually is 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 very small compared to the good that they can do by working together. From his earliest days, uh, uh, in you know his late teens and early twenties, he was uh, forging communities for self improvement, for uh, a library association, for a, 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 a group of people discussing the important ideas of their time. He um, developed insurance uh, in, Philad- in, in Philadelphia. He in, societies for insurance, for uh, fire control, for, for fire departments. Um, he uh, his, all, he believed that man was a social being, and that man working together, man in a large sense, man, men, women, and families working together, was the way to make a society that worked. And Rand had um, had. Her her family lost everything in the in the she was um, born in in Russia, her family lost everything in the revolution. Um, she saw altruism and a call to community action uh, perverted into into control and totalitarianism and and uh, a horrible um, um, transgression against human rights. She escaped with her with her parents' help. They helped her come to America. She landed in Hollywood and was a Hollywood writer uh, before she started writing novels. And for her, any call to community action was a call to um, 
to, to corruption. She saw anyone who talked about the greater good as being, uh, as being corrupt. She felt the world divided into those who stood entirely alone and acted, put their own interest above no one else's as heroes, and she saw everyone else as, as parasites, moochers, or looters. Those were her three, her three um, um, terms and, and, and division of the rest of, of human society. Um, Benjamin Franklin was a very flexible thinker. He was constantly questioning. And Rand um, was very proud of what she said later in life, that all her ideas were fully formed by the time she was 14. Um, she said that she um, uh, expanded upon them, but that her basic understanding of the world was formed by the time she was 14. She's extremely popular with, with young readers, and particularly um, from, that come from a conservative bent, or I think who, have, um, um, who come from an environment in which, um, it, it, frankly, from, from families that maybe don't operate as, as well as, as, as they might, because she, she, uh, she gives this view of a very round world where every question has an absolute answer, and also where, um, where what other people want of you is, it, it means nothing. Uh, you're entirely in control of your own destiny. And so I think that that's very attractive for, for people who, for whatever reason, feel out of control of their own destiny. It does not work in politics. We have right now, I think, from into to some degree, because the Tea Party is um, does draw on this absolutist "thou shalt not um, um, change your idea under any circumstances." Uh, we have a politic that's very broken right now. Uh, we 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 can't get anything done in Congress. It didn't work in Anne Rand's own life, and. Uh, she had her philosophical groups all broke up over. Um, um, she actually had an affair with her her um, intellectual heir, and when that broke up, she um, cut all ties with with them. And within her groups, um, she um, she would allow no dissent. She would allow no flexibility or, or growth of her of her own ideas. And she died alone. She died attended only by a nurse. She had essentially banished everyone with the exception of one young acolyte from her life because they weren't pure enough in their, in their uh, belief and their following of her ideas. I see her as essentially a tragic person mm-hmm. on a personal level. Um, and I don't think that, that her ideas have been positive for us as, as a nation. Yeah, very. Um, uh, it's a very apropos discussion, isn't it? And, and contrast for today's world, which uh, you can certainly read in the book. There, there's much else. So we we are out of time. We'll have to close the discussion down now. But a very interesting book, "The Year of Living Virtuously," weekends off, and the author is uh, Teresa Jordan. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, this has just been a, a complete delight, and thank you so much for having me on. I am such an admirer of your program that it's a thrill to be on it. Oh, oh, thank you. Appreciate that. By the way, I love the I love the um, the dedication, um, and that that'd be a whole other 
uh, discussion. You dedicate it to your husband, Hal Cannon, right? And you say to the master yeah, of banjos and other highly strung instruments, something to that effect. So, yes, to the patron saint yeah. of banjos <laughs> and, and other highly strung instruments. <laughs> makes me want to sit down and talk to the both of you together, so that maybe we'll do that at, at some point. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, and have a wonderful day and a wonderful uh, week. Uh, you too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening today. Commentator Gina Wickwar. If you could go back in time, and I don't mean to Jurassic Park, but to revisit part of your past, what's something you'd do? Would you take a road trip to see the house you lived in long ago? Well, I have. Many, many times. I say many, many because my father was an Air Force officer, and as a result, we lived in many, many places. I've returned to Brooklyn, New York, Hoopston, Illinois, Castro Valley, California, Yuma, Arizona, Tampa, Florida, and Fairbanks, Alaska. The only two places I've missed until recently were Albrook Air Force Base in the Canal Zone and Ashia Air Force Base in Kyushu, Japan. I still need to make it back to Kyushu, but I can now check off the Canal Zone. Just about two months ago, when Vin and I were returning from our trip to the Galapagos, we decided to take the flight home through Panama. I'd had a hankering to revisit Panama, where I'd lived some 60 years ago, largely to show Vin the locks, maybe take a ride through them, and to see breathtaking old, old Panama City and the air base house I used to live in for four years. I googled Panama City photos and slumped in despair. It looked like Galactic City in Star Wars. Silver skyscrapers, gleaming pointed sword buildings, towering Rococo hotels, cloud-high malls, all stacked side by side along the Panama Riviera, all rising from the dense green jungle. Beautiful, but I was devastated. My memory of the old pirate sack city was of narrow cobbled streets, jalousied doors and windows, tiny shops, barking street vendors, low-story homes with balconies wrapped in wrought iron, and cathedral steeples. And it was gone. I can't see the old city. Now it looks like Miami, I wailed to Vin. Well, he replied, we'll find out. Flying in from the south, we descended, circling the Pacific sprawl and landing far out from the city at a spectacularly modern airport. Our idea had been to rent a driver to take us around the old city, Balboa, Ancon Hill, the Miraflores Locks, and the once Albrook Air Base. After an airport scene of confusion that rivaled Lucy and Ethel's stomping grapes, we managed to hook up with Jaime, we were to call him Jimmy, who took us to an old-town hotel, promising to return in an hour for the great tour of nostalgia. And oh boy, we drove past my elementary school in Balboa, climbed up Ancon Hill, saw the old Gorkas Hospital, the Gulfles Administration site, and other Canal Zone-era buildings, all refurbished by the Panamanians after the zone was turned over to them in 1999. Then we drove a short way and entered Albrook, still named but without the Air Force base behind it. We went up and down streets, and finally Jimmy just said it was impossible to find my old house. We started to leave Albrook, but I pleaded for one more chance. I know it's on the way to Kirarundu, I insisted. Let's go back up that street and follow it almost to the end. He glanced at me and acquiesced. We did go to the end and nothing, but as we turned around, I yelled at him to turn left, and going slowly along the street, I eyed the old houses. One was still labeled 133. 
That's it, I shouted, and it was. We jumped out of the car and ran to the carport to encounter three bewildered men. Jimmy talked to them excitedly in Spanish, I in English. Nothing, because they were Russians. But my meager language skills convinced them we weren't CIA and that I had once lived there. They allowed me to run around back, look at the old mango trees still there, and the old playground. The carport was now tiled, the maid's room extended, the windows were now glass instead of screens and jalousies, but the tile roof was as ever. It looked almost exactly like the place I once lived. Jimmy just shook his head and grinned, then was taking photos like mad. I was swimming back in time to when I was 11 and climbed those mango trees, bounced balls against the carport wall, played catch with my dad in the backyard, smelled the sweet tropical air, and heard the roar of seaplanes taking off below the hill I lived on. I had gone back in time, and I'd continue. There were the Miraflores locks to see, the very locks I crossed every day for a school year. Ben and I and Jimmy left 133 Porter to see Gothel's heroic task that built one of the modern wonders of the world. My returning home was like that, too. A small wonder, maybe, but a wonder nevertheless. This is Gina Wickbar. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. 